0: What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man? I think we are four for four now, the last four weeks?
1: That sounds about right. Yeah, last week was a little different. Um, We interviewed Royce and, you know, Royce the 5'9". And I think just given, you know, several holidays over the weekend, we ran it um, earlier this week, which was cool. And I... you and I sat down. I don't think we thought it was going to be a two hour conversation. It wasn't just Royce either it was our, our mutual friend Kino as well, yeah, um, but that was some people I don't know about you, but some folks were texting me. I saw some comments, some folks were really digging that conversation,
0: yeah, that was dope man it felt that one felt uh like family, you know what I mean, like Kino and I are are super close, like we will talk about whatever we've had a lot of fun times together. He alluded to some uh. <laughs> <laughs> that we did not discuss. Yeah. Uh but you know that's my guy and because of that I've gotten to know Royce uh, decently over the, the years too. Royce is always just such a great dude, like humble, like uh laid back um you know so that was a real cool conversation, man. And even like I never thought we would discuss like, you know, Courtney Bell versus no, uh LaRussell versus Simba. Simba, you know, yeah. what I mean like that, that's just such a a wild tangent to go on but but it's a cool part of that conversation
1: yeah and i mean i always appreciate royce because he's been one of the artists um one of the biggest artists that's just been a supporter of afh beyond him like clearly even down to that la russell simba discussion over you know the last you know i would say close to 10 years when we've covered things royce has commented he's shared he's engaged with the comments um and i always appreciate that And and he was one of the I would say one of the first 10 people I ever interviewed when in my career started in the early 2000s. And I don't you know, I think you and Royce have more of a like a, a personal relationship as, as well as a professional one. Mine with Royce has been more in the professional capacity, but I really enjoyed that conversation and I really appreciated, um, you know, some of the compliments he gave us on our platform
0: yeah for sure man no that's always great to hear whether from him or from viewers or whatever like you know this is a grind you know what I mean and I I think both of us would do it for free I have have done it for free for a number of years you know what I mean um and you know listening to Black Thought which we're going to talk about later on today like he talks about that quite a bit how you know, if you can align your passion with like what actually like gives you money, then that's like perfect thing. But like for him, it's not about the money. It's about the passion. And even though for us, it is about the passion, that doesn't mean it's not a grind at times too,
1: you know? No, absolutely. And, you know, but it's when you hear that and you see that it, it reframes perspective. That's a, that's a phrase, a word you've always said to me in times when I've been weary or times where I've been fatigued of just like, yo, perspective, and yeah, I love that. I, I, you know, I think it was you that put me on to a Mark Cuban quote years ago about, you know, uh, how you how you start to supplement your dreams, always have another line of of revenue in play. And then over time, you can ultimately, if you're lucky and if you work at it, um, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but if you truly work at it, you can make your passion also what supports you. And it is a grind. And I don't think to anyone who has never done it. Regardless of the medium, you never you you never um, can estimate what that grind really looks like until you do it.
0: Absolutely, but like supremely fortunate to have been able to do this, man. Uh, I would have never thought in a million years, growing up as a kid in Indiana, that I would be able to sit and have a conversation with a Royce, uh, a DJ Premier, uh, an MC8, uh, you know Kendrick, whoever it may be, man. Jay Z, like that is just it's mind blowing, man. And so like, I count my blessings every day.
1: Absolutely. And with that said, um, please, for anyone out there, whether you watch us or listen, um, you know, hit that subscribe button on whatever the platform, give us a like, if you can a comment, a follow with everything we just said, it's it's with others in mind. And and it's not just you and me talking to the world. This is community. This is conversation. You and I regularly engage with um, folks that have, Something constructive, something positive, something, sometimes something of of disagreement. And this is why we do it. And we're building this community together in real time. So please take those steps and uh, tell a friend if you can.
0: Absolutely. And so another person that we have both had the good fortune of speaking with, I think on a number of occasions now, uh, both informally, but also interviews, is Black Thought, who just is one of my top 10 MCs, has been for a very, very long time. I remember exactly where I was uh, when I heard distortion of static for the first time. It was rap City's uh, countdown. I think um, they did a top 10 countdown on Fridays. And I think it was 94, uh, mm. 93, 94. Um, and I searched obviously before the internet, I searched record stores around the city for that for weeks until finally I found a cassette single in central square. And I, I I'll never forget it, man. Uh, but and then I saw them, I saw the roots at this place called Axis. It was it was a club that, you know, smaller than SOBs, probably held about 400 people, something like that. Love did a DJ set to open it up. Uh, it's first time I heard Milk Bones, Keep It Real. Oh, wow. Uh, we dropped that. And then I saw them perform pretty much the entire Do You Want More album live in a venue like that, man. And so ever since then, I've just been a massive, massive fan of Black Thought. And he made uh he made some waves
1: this week with the release. Most definitely, yeah. I mean, we have had uh by my count, six Black Thought projects, you know, and most of those I would consider albums. I know that we always get lost in the semantics anymore, but six projects in five years. That is insane. And let's not forget, this is the 30th year after Organics, which is kind of the demo debut for the roots. So Black Thoughts in his 30th year as a professional, um, by my count. And, you know, waited all of this time to kind of isolate himself as a solo voice. I know all, all six of those projects have been with various producers, like like kind of like a tandem. But now it's like he's just making up for lost time, being super prolific. And despite that quantity, the quality has never wavered. And that's very evident in this latest release. Um, you know, glorious game.
0: Which is insane, man. Just for context, I mean, the roots in that 30 year period have done 14 albums, right? And some of those are like soundtrack and live. Uh, you know, when it comes to just pure studio albums, I think it's close to like 10 or 11. So for Black Thought to have done six albums in five years versus that amount for them in, you know, nearly 30 years is just, he's on an incredible, incredible run, you know, and and Mm -hmm. we make this comparison a lot, but it's valid. I think that he Royce and a few others have stepped into a different level, almost a prime of their career. Nas Mm -hmm. is arguably another one, right? Like in their, in their forties, greater and so for him to do this right now in the state of his, his career, I think is is really amazing.
1: Absolutely, we've talked a lot about that, and and you asked Royce a question, you know, about hip hop being a quote unquote young man or woman's game, and you know, and it was funny. Like Royce said, it is, but he's also living proof that it's not. And you called him on that. Yeah. Um. And I do think I think yeah for sure thought Royce Nas um I would I would I would say Jay Z um yeah. for as great as he is Master Ace. Yeah, I would say Fonte, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. we can go we can go on and on and on, um, just continue to get get better. We we did an interview last year with Cormega. I'd put him in there, too. Maybe AZ. So, yeah, there's just there's some great examples. And I totally believe that, well, you know, hip hop thrives on the energy of the youth. um, There is no there is no checkout time um, because these MCs keep getting greater and making art that hits the heart and souls of people.
0: That's true, but it's weird, man, because like, so obviously athletes are different, right? There's a physical skill and um, skill set that you have to have that just diminishes over time, you know, uh, unless you're Tom Brady, which is, but still, um, you know, at some point, Father Tom like comes and like, you know, saying goes, Father Time is undefeated. I would say that even though in theory that should not apply in music, I think it does, especially when you look at other genres of music, it's rare that you have artists, even like the Rolling Stones or U2 or the Who or whoever who are touring consistently put out great albums after a certain age, right? Um, U2 had kind of a comeback uh, with the album uh, that had Beautiful Day on it. Um, It was like maybe 10 years after, you know, their peak time, but that's so rare. I can't think of anyone else. David Boyd, just before he died, um, put out a a well-received album, but nothing compared to, like, the prime of his career. But rap artists, the ones we've just named, some of them seem to be, you know, to your point, actually getting better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you, too. There's things like, I remember that Rick Rubin, Johnny Cash album, you know, that series of albums, but that was a very curated victory lap. Um, You know, Steely Dan won album of the year at the Grammys in the early 2000s. And, you know, while that was a really good album, I don't think it necessarily compares against their 1970s work or their early, you know, or gaucho. And with hip hop, it's not always a victory lap. I mean, often it's not. The artists that we're talking about are breaking new ground and doing new things and expressing new vulnerabilities and rapping from new perspectives. Um, You know, the Rolling Stones had hits. Neil Young had hits. In the you know in the '90s and in the 2000s, but there's a little bit of legacy to those hits, I would say. And and in hip hop, it's totally different. You know, these are these are artists that continue to evolve. So I think we're saying the same thing, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with you.
0: Why do you think that is? You know, Royce he talked about the fact that he didn't want to be Ozzy Osbourne when he was in the '70s, and what he meant was. You know, is it in response to my my question about his lifestyle changes, uh, people know that Royce has been sober for a number of years now, but he also eats well, he works out, like he does a lot of things to take care of himself. And his comment was that he didn't want to end up like Ozzy Osbourne, who was really, really in bad physical health and just had to retire because of it. And it's been, been so for a long time, right? Like, um, you know, very difficult speaking for him shuffles, you know, barely can lift his feet off the ground when he walks. Do you think there's something about how, I mean, there's a a lot of, we know a lot of unfortunate things that have happened where a lot of, uh, we've lost a lot of legends, not just to violence, but through medical conditions and things like that. Fife, um, uh, Blackalicious, Gift of Gab, Gift of Gab. Uh, There've been a number of people at Bismarck a lot of people like that, right? Um, What is it that you think has allowed rappers to
1: excel in their 40s where other genres have not it's a really good question um i don't know i i think that it's also different times i mean the examples that we all listed every one of those artists seems to have an accountability of, of to your point with royce like living your life being healthy you know you and mass ace i clown you about it and mass ace has been honest he suffers from serious health challenges um and that being said I, he has his he has ms i believe right Yep, that's right. And you had a conversation with him and Marco Polo about, you know, what his diet and fitness looks like. I mean, and I know he's an avid football coach and all these things. There's an accountability. And sometimes I think that in the nineties and in the eighties and in the two thousands for a lot of, you know, and this, this was true of, of of hip hop, but definitely with rock, like you have to be the image, you have to party after the show, you have to drink, you have to smoke, you have to like, you know, you look at the Rolling Stones and why I always thought Mick Jagger was an incredible physical shape. I know he doesn't always look it, but he's an acrobatic guy well into his seventies, now eighties. You see Keith Richards up there, you know, cranking Marlboro Reds and similar to Ozzy, like the way he's conducted himself in interviews, it's not all there. And I think that hip hop took accountability, said, what can we do to not be like that and 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 live a longer life and be there, um, you know, be there for for families and for business interests and all of that.
0: Yeah, well, Black Thought has definitely defined the odds. And I think it's more than just music. Uh, we'll get into this. I think I think it's a great time to kind of reflect on Black Thought's career as a solo artist because yeah. we've done this, you know, we did a, a competition called Finding the Goat MC, where we had, I think we started with 168 MCs. And we did a bracket style, this is back in 2015, and let the people decide. You know, millions of people weighed in over the course of several months to decide who the greatest of all time MC was. And from that came some themes. We did a, a documentary about women because there was a real kind of lack and respect for women. Um, you know, I, I don't think a single woman MC made it out of the first round, and that includes Lauryn Hill and Queen Latifah, MC Light, and so forth. Which is yeah, Rhapsody narrated
1: that. It was great.
0: Yeah, Rhapsody narrated that. You can find that on our channel. Um, there was another one about the underdogs. Um, And then uh, one that was particularly pertinent to Black Thought was about how certain MCs are underrated, and it's likely because they're part of groups. So I think that even though everybody knows how nice Black Thought is, he's not mentioned in that GOAT conversation as much as I think he should, given the fact that he has been around for 30 years, he's been consistent with his output, and is only getting better. I think he should be in... In most people's consideration for top five, if not top ten, and possibly goat, but I don't think a lot of people think of him, of him that way. Um, and so, I think that part of what's happened with him, though, is he stayed busy. He's continued to do other things, and that has only helped. That's only helped him flourish in his career.
1: Absolutely, and there's new channels out here. I think that. Um... You know, and first of all, you said at the top, you know, he's in your top 10. We did a special episode last year in summer, I think June of 2022, of kind of gathering a lot of top five and top 10 lists from other artists that have, you know, we, we compilated that, compiled that. And, you know, at the very end, we asked each other, and I'm, unless I'm crazy, Black Thought was in mine. So you and I are both people that regard him as top 10, but I think he's benefited from some of the technological tools out there of being able to release an album outside of the label structure. Um, Apart from one of these albums on BMG, they've all kind of been independent releases and he's able to still do everything that he does, you know, whether the tonight show, whether features, whether, I mean, we're going to talk about it, multi-medium, you know, hyphenate artist. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also a sign of the times, but I wonder, I think that black thought is super calculated and very aware of legacy you hear him refer about himself as the best often in his lyrics more and more, I would say, over those last five years. And I wonder how much of he saw that and and really stepped out with these projects. And, you know, both you and I said last year, Cheat Codes, I felt, was a Grammy snub. Um, I would like to see some of these albums get their, their due on the mainstream stage. Absolutely. So, you know, the
0: point of that video was that He's been overlooked, possibly because he's been in a group. And I think we now have a very strong body of work over a significant period of time to reflect on Black Thought's solo career. And so I want to spend some time on that, starting with the release that just came out today uh, called Glorious Game. You know, Every single one of these albums that Thought has put out over the last uh, five, six years has been a collaboration with one producer or one one artist, one group of uh, musicians. So this one is a little bit different in that it's not a producer. El Michael's Affair is a band that's got an incredible, incredibly rich history. Having played, you know, members have played and with Sharon Jones as part of the, the Dap Kings and played with uh Wu-Tang Clan. Um, you know, backed up Raekwon and other members of Wu, released an album of covers called uh Enter the 37th Chamber. And then two the, volumes, yeah. Another one Return of the to the 37 of to the 37th Chamber. And also, um, I thought this was cool because this is one of my favorite musical series, period, video or otherwise, Tiny Desk by NPR. This band also backed up Mad Lib and Freddie Gibbs when they had their Tiny Desk performance, which I always thought was just such an out of the box Tiny Desk, by the way, but shows you the kind of musical chops these guys have. And so for Black Thought to perform with them is super cool but it's probably also most like what he's been used to for his entire career, right? He's playing with a a super skilled band of musicians. And in fact, I think two of them are now in The Roots too, or play with The Roots periodically. So um, in some ways, it's kind of a return to form, but I think sonically sounds very different than
1: anything he did with The Roots. But what about you? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, to me, um, this project, and it, it, you know, Leon Michaels, the the frontman and kind of creator of the L. Michaels Affair, has, has referred to his kind of subgenre as cinematic soul, which makes perfect sense. And, and that really came to life. I mean, you mentioned the return of the 37th Chamber, those two projects. In the um, Showtime documentary, they used their version of Cream in the title cards and on the outro, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it played so well in that. And they have just kind of a, it sounds like vintage instruments, and it has that haziness and that kind of red vinyl smoky room feel and the roots have had that at moments but i look at their sound not ever as as not overly hazy not overly um into into kind of groovy vibes and that's what i get with glorious game so you're right it is a live band live band with some personnel um familiarity but it's a totally different sound than i've ever gotten from a roots album
0: yeah, and I think part of that is, you know, so there was a, an interview that The Fader did. Uh, really great interview. Um,
1: Shout out to Tim Hotep. Yeah, he yeah, did
0: that. Yeah, he he really, 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 really dope. Tim Aku, right? Um, yeah. And a great interview. Um, but, you know, Black Thought during the course of that said that the Els Michaels Affair played full compositions, but would then go back and sample those for the album. Very much like what we saw with DJ Premier, with Adrian Young, and and others for Prime. Um, you know, I, I think that that is like the best of all worlds. You know, first of all, it's great on the on the business side because the publishing, uh, you don't have to clear a bunch of samples and pay a bunch of people for it. But secondly, even though you're leveraging live instruments, you still get that hip hop feel. And you know, rap music, even though Sugar Hill Gang, I think, rap to a, a live band. Um, is still a, very much a sample-based medium, especially since the 1980s or 90s, you know, so um, I think Black Thought sounds great on it, but he has some interesting things to say in that interview, and definitely I encourage people to go check that out. He talked about what Glorious Game meant, and he said, for me, Glorious Game is just that information passed down from OG, from an OG, from a gatekeeper, from an elder statesman, with a cautionary tale here and there, but no, but not preachy, and told from a personal perspective, just giving away some jewelry to move with. Which, you know, that's what Black Ga- Black Thought is now, man. He's a, he's a OG. He's a an elder statesman, and he gives so much game in his lyrics. But it, it's it's often like kind of one-offs, just like uh, you know, he'll he'll put a jewel in a line here and there, almost like what Jay was doing with Four Forty Four. But uh, but this this is filled with
1: with that kind of game. Yeah, Nas does that too. I mean, Illmatic is filled with that, and over time, which you're absolutely right, and that makes sense because I think that that thought's gotten very comfortable as an OG. But I love the fact that he says not preachy. I mean, that's the thing that I've really appreciated of him is it's never too cerebral of a concept. It's almost like you're listening, and it's you know very hypnotic rapping, and it all makes sense. It's all coherent, and then he'll hit you with that one truism that you can move with and will resonate with you later.
0: Yeah. He also said that it was one of his most personal projects. He said, it's probably one of my most personal projects to date and that I made a conscious decision. I said, okay, I'm going to make an effort for every song to be a story. So it's going to going to be all narrative and it's going to all come from a personal place. I thought that was really interesting. You know, um, Black Thought is a lot of things, but he doesn't get in storyteller mode that often. You know, I think about uh, Silent Treatment and... Um, uh, you got me, and, and things like that. But, but when you the, when you think about Black Thought, first thing that comes to mind isn't typically storyteller.
1: No, I would agree with you.
0: Yeah. So, um, what was your first impression after hearing the album?
1: I will tell you, it was an album, and I don't, I cannot articulate why this is. I liked it on the first listen, but it was, it was kind of, you know, like looking at a bunch of colors on a wall and i've listened now i think four times and and to be clear we we record this on fridays this album has been out less than 14 hours um and obviously there have been singles along the way but on my second and third listen is where i really came to appreciate um what he was saying i take a song like the weather um which is it's interesting to read that quote um but it's basically black thought taking you by the hand to his grandmother's house in South Philly and he's describing every single thing from the vinyl on the couch to the chicken or the fresh fish you know frying in the kitchen to what's going on outside um you know and <laughs> like he even has to, to speak to the point we just spoke of he has a lyric like the only neighbor that didn't knock was opportunity I, I'm I'm butchering that a little bit but it's that kind of line that you're going to carry with you there's a reason why that jumps out of me after four listens but it's it's so thoughtful and then you think about it and l michaels has this you know nostalgic soul so even though it's not you know it's not trying deliberately to sound super 70s i think the instruments that they play um the way that it's arranged you feel like you walked into somebody's living room and black dot is literally like a, a guided tour of it and i think that that is just one illustration. Um, as well as the title track, those are my two favorite songs, and I know both of which you put on the playlist.
0: Yeah, I gotta say, I was really pleasantly surprised because, as big of a fan of his as I am, I think for you and me both, we we weren't really checking for the first single. Uh, in fact, I don't even know—did we even cover it? I, I think
1: we did, but we covered it under the guise of the news announcement of Black yeah. Thought has an album coming. And and while you're here, you know, check it out. Yeah, so sonically, like
0: it didn't blow me away. Um, so I came in, I guess, with uh, with like no expectation or maybe even lowered expectations. But man, uh, really, from song number two, which is the the the, the title track. track "Glorious Game," on and even the first track I like now too, I was blown away. I thought sonically it was just impeccable and. You know, Black Thought, and he says this later in that interview that you know he can be super lyrical, lyrical, dirical, as he says, (laughs) and and be incredibly dense, and we've seen that from him many, many times. I think what he did with this one is he stepped back and he took it down and let let the bars breathe more, and was way less, um, way less complex without without sacrificing complication mm. if you know what i mean right like so there's dense bars you know they're heavy bars but it's not necessarily because he's overwhelming you with words many many words like the concepts are there you know obviously his references and and his you know he he makes a a reference on even the opening song where he talks about being uh after more than jojo dancer's house uh, yeah <laughs> you know which is such a, a head trip because first of all, you got another movie Jojo Dancer, which is uh the story of Richard Pryor's life. He grew you up also, in, a,
1: you, in a brothel, right?
0: He grew up in a brothel, yeah. right? So uh which is effed up, but also there's a lot of effing going on, right? So like <laughs> he's hitting you with double on it only you'll understand it if you know the reference, which is not like a simple reference, you know what I mean? So there's the the the, comp, the complexity is still there but it's not overly complicated um you know so that that struck me but then just the sonic pleasure of it because you know I'm I'm going for the music first so yeah. much like I, I put four songs on the playlist I had to restrain myself after, after a while because I was just blown away time and time again
1: yeah and actually while we've been on this call black dot uh d you know he liked our uh support of it on i g so that's great to see that he he feels the support. Yeah. um but but to your point too i think it's funny like grateful i wasn't against it but it didn't strike me and that's happened to me and i've mentioned on this podcast the example that you always roast me for is J rocks you know when when i heard a la carte i was like yeah it's not my favorite and you were like i was no. the same way
0: too oh you were right. okay i was the same way it that's was, the, it, was the, it was the the g font uh joint um that you said wasn't g font but was was uh, that yg who was, or was it? No, was with it? J, it was J-Rock. It was J-Rock. Uh, yeah. It was an OSLM or like non double No, like, I got you. Like, no, I you got you. Like, yeah.
1: But it's, my point being like, and, and you and I always make the case of like why albums are still important and still important in a singles-driven culture. I love the fact that a single sometimes doesn't work for me or doesn't, doesn't excite me. And then in the context, you know, put wherever it is. And in this case, you know, Grateful is the first song, first single, first song you appreciate it differently when you surround it by others and get more of a complete picture of what the artists are trying to do. It's just, it's one more reason why, you know, albums matter and art matters like that. But yeah, um, this, this album definitely I've, I've really, it'll be something like I, I hesitate to say, cause the last time you and I did one of these podcasts, we were really gushing over Larry June and alchemist, Um you know, with the great escape, but this might be my new, and I'm, in Philadelphia today, South Philly to be specific, but this might be my new album of the year so far.
0: It's a great, great start. You know, one of the things, I love how intentional Black Thought was with the album. One of the things that uh, Tim, the Fader interviewer, asked him was, how is this album different from your other output? Mm-hmm. And Black Thought, Black Thought said, I would say on Glorious Game, what people are getting that they haven't gotten before for me is nuance. My sweet spot is that I've come to understand over the past eight years or so, that because I've worked for such a long time as part of a collective and sort of serving the greater good of the roots consensus, you know, which is the point we've been making, my dexterity really is best served as a writer and as a storyteller outside of the roots. If I'm working with one producer at a time, I could work with 20 producers on 20 projects simultaneously. I'm able to compartmentalize in that way, but as long as it's only one producer per project, I feel like that's my sweet spot. And that's like how I've been able to hit this productive stride in recent years since the Streams of Thought series began, which I thought was fascinating. And you know, he talks later on in the interview and says he's actually got several different uh, projects um, going at the same time right now. We'll get into one of those in a few minutes. But he also said, "Glorious Game" is probably one of my most personal projects to date, and that I made a a conscious decision. I said, "Okay, uh, yeah, we read that part." Uh, The storytelling, yeah, yeah. So, um, so. So, yeah, man, um, I think that it's fascinating to hear how strategic he is about this stuff. You know, um, to your point, a lot of people don't make albums. They're just doing songs for playlists. And even those who do, it takes a long, long time to create albums. You know, we see Kendrick taking four or five years uh, at a time now. And, um, you know, J. Cole even taking a couple years. years, um, you know, but. For black thought to be that prolific and that intentional at the same time, I think is is pretty wild.
1: It is. And it's interesting. I mean, this interview illustrates this, but for a lot of years, um, Black thought was I always found to be more more um less in the spotlight. You know, I think that Quest Love Amir was often the mouthpiece of the roots. And I think Gangstar was similar, you know, like in the nineties and in you know, early 2000s, like Guru did a lot of the interviews representing Gangstar and Premier would do some some secondary. And then over time, you know, Premier, who's a phenomenal storyteller. I mean, you and I have interviewed him for AFH over the years a number of times. But it's, it's interesting to see Black Thought, you know, know yeah. his art and his purpose and his mission so well. And it's articulated brilliantly in this Fader interview. And then to have the companion and hear it in the album right now, um, yeah, this is definitely an artist that is developing at the highest level in, in real time.
0: Yeah, he talked about that specifically in the interview, how he had and still has anxiety speaking in front of people, you know, and so for him, it was easier because Amir, you know, Love is, he said, supremely gifted at it. Uh, not only is he great at giving responses, but, you know, if he wants to avoid the question, he's great at giving you gab until you forget what the question was and you feel satisfied with what he said. Um, But he said, I thought that in recent years, he's realized in order to serve a higher purpose, he has to confront that and actually, you know, just jump head in. And it doesn't make it any easier, but it's part of the game and, and part of who he wants to become. And so he's done it to the point where now he's teaching college courses at NYU and performing on Broadway and doing all sorts of things that are outside of his comfort zone, but you know, just with a pure desire to get better, which which I think is dope.
1: Absolutely, man. I was a fan. I mean, I remember when Black Thought was pivoting more into acting. I always thought Brooklyn Babylon was an enjoyable film, and I always thought that was very bold of him in ninety nine two thousand to make that film. But yeah, I mean, he continues to find more and more mediums, um, and you know, is doing things in, in film and television right now, and just truly being. Uh, an artist on every possible level.
0: Yeah, another thing about this album is it's it's uh it's short. It's
1: um we got it right here. 30, it's
0: 31 minutes. 31 yep. minutes and 12 seconds. How mo- you know, in this day and age of being overwhelmed by information, um I love an album, but I also love a short album. Uh, you know, how much do you think that that plays a role in in your love for it?
1: It does. I mean, it's funny. There are artists and I won't say any names, but I think we can all we all have an artist that we know that oversaturates, like somebody we respect. And it's like, damn, you just released an album two weeks ago and you got another one. And one thing I'll say is six albums in five years. Um, I've never felt oversaturated with Black Dot solo material with these producer projects. It wasn't even in, I mean, you and I in December were sitting together and I had a conversation with my man Andres after this podcast, and he let me know about the Afrobeat joint that he did with um, you know, Sion Cootie. Uh the sun and like to find out that black thought is putting out projects without heavy duty over the head marketing and all of that it's a testament too and it's like finding art that same feeling of going to a record store and discovering something is still there so yeah i think that that is huge and to not make these overloaded one hour and five minute albums makes it that much easier to go from cheat codes to glorious game in less than a year
0: Yeah, and to your point, the Great Escape is also under an hour. That's forty-five minutes as well. Is it? Yeah. Coincidence? They're all killer, no filler. Both of these albums. So one of the things that Black Thought said, you know, to your point about his productivity, is that he approaches these projects very differently than the Roots did. You know, he says the Roots have played it safe over time, and. We've seen that. You know, we've all heard the rumors about their their, their new album being done. And th- that rumor has been going on for like seven, eight years now, um, maybe longer. We know that part of that delay was the, the death of their longtime manager, Rich Nichols. But still, um, it, it sounds like there's kind of a, almost a paralysis of analysis there. And Thought said that he does something very different with these. He said, there's still something to be said about going with your gut. Working in as close to an, an improvisational dynamic as possible, and that's what I set set what and that what that's what sets what I do outside the roots apart. I don't spend a lot of time if it's me and Ninth Wonder or me and Salam Remi or me and Sean C or Danger Mouse working on a thing. It's like I show up. Sometimes we get two songs done in a session. You know, and to his point, like the, the one he did with Salaam Remy, he did basically in two sessions, recorded in two sessions, mixed in the third and, and done, uh, which is it's crazy. But uh, I think that's that's a, that's been a big part of why he's been able to be so productive in that time, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we just uh, were spending some time talking about Just Blaze last month and the blueprint and kind of rehashing that story of a lot of the blueprint, Jay-Z's blueprint, falling together in the course of a weekend know after he heard some beats and then justin kanye and bank went to work and you know tupac's all eyes on me is you know reportedly recorded in two weeks or less and i think there's something to be said for um just being in flow you and i talk about that a lot of like when you're making these albums the thing that amazes me with that is with black thought there's no there's no there's no compromise of quality and that that applies to the music as well as the lyrics there are artists out here that are super prolific where at times it feels rushed or it feels like a churn. And I don't get any of that, but you know, I do see that when you're a group that's been around for 30 years and you've taken longer than a decade to release an album, um, you know, of course that's going to weigh in when you step forth, you're going to feel of, you know, responsibility and a pressure of the outage. You know, that's like Jay electronica releasing his first album and he, you know, the written testimony and black thought has freed himself from those pressures. And he's just, you know, whether we're talking about the studio or putting out the albums, he seems very free with it. And I I think the quality is there.
0: Yeah. I think being in flow is important, but also uh, I think being in the same headspace, you know, one of one of the things that you tend to ask a lot of our people who come on as guests is how they were able to make it sound so cohesive, the album, if they work with different producers. Right. I mm-hmm. think part of that is, I think we have certain periods where we have just have, have a certain headspace. Like sometimes you like dark comedy, sometimes you might like a horror film or whatever it is, but our mood changes over time and our musical taste does too. You know, what you're listening to now heavy might be very different than what you were listening to six months ago and so on. And so I think to the extent that you're able to create a project within a shorter period of time, you're more likely to be in that same kind of musically cohesive space too. And we hear that with these projects too, and beyond just working with the same producer.
1: That's really that's a really a good point. Interesting, and it amazes me of how in touch Black Thought is with his um, catalog. You know, whether the Roots, Money Making Jam Boys solo, you know, all of that. You know, recently you you filmed uh, at the De La Soul, you know, music event, and Black Thought grabbed the mic and performed, and it was funny. And I, I think we talked about it on here, but earlier that day, for whatever reason, I had listened to Bird's Eye View. the joint he had done with I think Raekwon and Joey Badass for Static Sex's album and that was the verse that he spit which is a feature verse it's a great one but you know if you think of thought doing a freestyle you would think it might be something of his own or something you know and I think to have an artist that literally in my mind I imagine thought to just have like those old old cards uh, at the library when you would try to find a book like he has rhymes for days and that's what makes him just such an elite MC. and he's able to bring those rhymes to these projects and this one being to his interview like like you said super personal super narrative um i like that and that distinguishes this one from the other five big time
0: yeah so let's talk about some of the other projects he's he's released over that time um you want to kind of i know you laid this out you want to break this down
1: Yeah, I mean, so like I said, thirty years ago the Roots, um, you know, put out organics. It's kind of a demo that doesn't as I understand it, and I wasn't around to receive it at the time, but it's a it's a demo that is that is released and it's always kind of been one of those asterisk things of whether that or do you want more is their first album. Kind of similar maybe to like Slum Village with Fantastic One versus Volume Two. Like there's they were clearly coming together, but they got a deal at you know dgc david geffen's company um then they move over to mca and black thought for those first seven years is primarily just a roots artist we start to see him later in the decade um appear more and more in features you know you you think of things like black stars respiration remix which we actually have on the site or big pun super lyrical you know he starts to branch out but in the 90s in all of the 90s you only get outside of the roots, really one thing that I learned about today, I have to admit this. Um, in, in 1998, he put out um, two records with a Japanese label with bassist uh, Jamal Adin. The Hollers of the Horn is one, and then there's another one, Relax, which Lord Finesse, who we had on the show, did a remix to. I never knew that existed. And actually, it's, it's much closer to the roots than anything uh, Amir plays drums on at least one of those songs. Um, but I remember, and this is where I can kind of come into the fold. I remember buying records in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, you know, he put out a single called Hardware on MCA, which was, again, where the Roots were signed at the time. Dice Raw put out a solo project. Like, the Roots were getting very comfortable at that label. And I have, it's funny, I should have pulled it out for this interview because I have it on the wall. Um, that had a picture car, picture picture cover 12-inch. And it's said from Black Thought's upcoming solo album. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time, I mean, this was very much pre-rap internet the way that we know it. But people at the record store, my friends were all clamoring like, whoa, you know, the Roots had just released, Things Fall Apart, got a Grammy with You Got Me. um, And now we're going to get a Black Thought solo project? Like, what could that sound like? Because that single was produced by DJ Crush. Um, And then oddly enough, you have... (laughs) You have eighteen years go by before we ever really get um the next black thought step. And yeah, the, and that, oh. That's
0: that's it's crazy. Um it's crazy that that happened. I don't remember that at all, right? Uh, but it, it's it's one of those kind of sliding doors moments where you wonder what would have happened if he had stepped out. You know, would he have maybe taken off and and you know been solo from there on and the roots legacy would have been fundamentally altered or would have been like more like guru with jazzmataz, where he steps out for a bit but and does something different but then comes back and it also makes you wonder why uh, because you know we all know the economics of the music business especially when it comes to big groups that it's not that favorable and a lot of times going solo is by necessity because it just can't be sustained, you know, uh, off your portion. We saw a lot of that with Wu. Um, you wonder why uh, Black Thought didn't step out, you know, and it took, you know, several years, even after uh, their last group album for him to do so. You know, my theory is that it's it's just all a testament to his and uh, Tariq's, his and um, Amir's personal relationship You know, uh, I I think that they function, it seems, you know, from the outside as like musical partners. And that's a partnership that is kind of never going to be done, um, you know, ever, despite whatever else is going on. But also it might be that, um, you know, we've seen that with other groups, a lot of times there's tension and friction. Uh, When a person decides they want to go and do something solo, you know, based on this interview that Black Thought had with The Fader, It sounds like that was never the case with The Roots. And he was always able, as was everyone else, to go off and do side projects, whether musical or otherwise. And in a reverse psychology kind of way, maybe that's actually what kept them together, is that they had that freedom.
1: That's a really good point. And and I have to wonder, too, um, you know, we're going to talk about Dilla a little later in the podcast. But, you know, MCA at that time was such an exciting label. And they had an A&R, Wendy Goldstein, that had signed or was developing a lot of great hip-hop for a major label. I mean, you had Jay Dilla sign there, you had I think Slum Village for a minute before they went independent. Um, you, of course, common the roots, eventually the raucous artists ended up over there. But Black you just mentioned Gab was on MCA. I mean, on and on Killer Kill a Priest. It was a really interesting time. And as I mentioned, like there was there was kind of a, and you remember this probably you know as an entertainment lawyer but there was a period of time by the by like 2003 2004 like mca and geffen had folded in together and a lot of those opportunities never came to fruition but between 2000 and 2002 you also got phrenology um i oddly enough the weekend i moved to philly in september of 2002 that weekend the roots and the mighty mighty boston's did a free concert on the parkway for all of you know the new students in college and everyone else and that album um i always thought was was an inflection point of sorts for the roots they had already had you know a hit with you got me but they always thought the seed became this like crossover song that was getting rock radio airplay and all these different things so maybe those two ideologies of like what they're doing as a band with thoughts trying to do alone maybe it just was like yo i'm going to hold off on that and by the time i do it the labels in a different situation it's actually a question i would love to ask tariq I'm curious if I have ever asked him, I've interviewed him a few times, but the fact that I don't have a definitive answer on the top of my head leaves me to believe I don't. So
0: yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, he, he did obviously get around to it, but it wasn't until 2018, you know, um, with very little warning. I remember
1: you and I speaking that that album released in June on a super hot day, just like today. And I think we learned about it just a few days earlier. And that was the one that was It's I always think of it as produced by Ninth Wonder. I know it's Ninth and the Soul Council and Crisis did one joint on there. But man, oh, man, that was one of the biggest stories we had that year, wasn't it? It was, it was. We did the premiere of that song and
0: I'd learned about it a little bit earlier because, you know, Ninth hit me to it, you know, obviously was sworn to secrecy, but like was so excited for that. But something happened in 2017. Mm. I think there's an argument may have kicked off this whole this whole thing, you know, so December of 2017. You know, the cycle, the new cycle in music tends to shut down like first week in December. Um, You know, that's when people's best of the year um, lists come out and, you know, people stop releasing albums and it's just a bone dry period for uh, for for music. But it was like December 13th or something like that, like middle of the month. Funkmaster Flex has Black Thought on for a freestyle and he goes, I think, for like 13 minutes straight, something insane like that. Yeah just absolutely destroys it. And it, it created a massive, massive viral moment. Like we haven't seen, we don't see this that often. Maybe once every couple of years where a pure performance, not a news item, a performance becomes a news item to the point where as funny as it is, right? He's on Jimmy Fallon, uh, you know, every day as on the house as part of the roots being their house, his house band, but Jimmy Fallon had him on the couch that day talk about like this video that had gone viral. It was just insane. I think the reaction to that, I think there's an argument that that kick Black Thought into thinking, damn, you know what? The people people want this. They need this.
1: I'm going to ride this. What, but what do you think? I think you nailed it. I think that that was a moment where hip-hop, and I won't even say hip-hop, but I feel like casual rap fans realize that arguably the greatest MC alive was outing in plain sight. Mm. And, you know, and I loved it too. The fact that like, you don't think of funk flex and the roots together. You don't think of funk flex all respect due to flex all respect due to the roots, but like hot 97 is not what I think of turning on to hear root song and flex at that year, you know, maybe a couple years prior had begun using his YouTube channel to do these freestyles and you're getting a lot of different artists, a lot of them on the come up and you and I, you know, Ambrosia covered a lot of them and then thought at the time when, you know, it seems like it's, it's, you know, vacation week for a lot of the hip hop media comes in and just puts everyone else to shame. I mean, our headline was something to the effect of don't let the year end without black dots spitting the greatest freestyle, which I think is even underselling it at the time. And we, we knew that and we came back and covered his conversation with Fallon covered a lot of it more but it was an incredible moment and then you're right like you you do something like that you get the attention like that so it's only right that approximately six months later at a time when the roots are not releasing albums um you step forth with a grammy winning producer you know a great producer and shock the world with your first solo project streams of thought
0: yeah and so he comes out with that first song with Ninth, and was was Royce? Who, was, who else was Styles on Styles P? Styles P was on that too, um, and then follows up like like within a few months of that same year with Salam Remy. Uh, you know from who's famous from working with the Fujis and Amy Michael Winehouse, and Amy Winehouse, and and tons of other people. But an In E. Komozie, yeah, producer <laughs> himself, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, so two quality uh, EPs in the same year. So he goes from zero to 100, like real quick, you know, um, slows down a little bit. Um, Streams of Thought 3 comes out in 2020, which is not slow, given that, you know, really, we're talking about a year and change uh, from those first two, um, you know, with and that was uh, with Sean C. Uh, and the interesting thing is that he does he's not working with um you know the obvious choices right right? so ninth wonder and he i think had worked together in the past but not a ton of stuff right and so that's a that's a real surprise salam remy also that they all make sense sonically when you step back and think about it but they're not the first people you think of when you think about like doing a, a project for black thought
1: yeah i would agree i mean ninth seemed a little familiar and there was there was a headline that we ran there was a report at one point And I forget who we sourced, but there was, you know, The Roots have been working on an album or or so the public's been told for a number of years. And there was a period of time where we reported those two names, Ninth Wonder and Salam Rami, were jumping in to work with The Roots. And yes, I mean, over the years, you've had Scott Storch, who was at one time a member, you've had Jay Dilla, you've had different producers come in as part of those ensembles. But that that was a moment for a lot of fans of thinking of like, wow, you're having these established producers that we know and trust work with this band that we hold in the highest. Like, what is that going to sound like? And we didn't get our answer in the way that we thought. We got it alone with with Tariq. And that was really interesting. And yeah, I mean, by the time you get to Sean C, which was a very... I mean, all of those albums sound different, one to the next. But in 2020, that arrived in the pandemic um, and kind of had some of the uncertainty that was going on in the world. I love that album the year that it released. Um, and it was very... Uh, rocky like it had a lot of rock in there and a lot of like you know melody and things like that so it was cool it was, it was like watching you know Black Thought the emphasis on collaboration and coming out with something different each time was definitely there
0: yeah and then in 2022 we get another couple of albums um, I think one of the most surprising ones to me was the Danger Mouse album Cheat Codes you know and we both had that in our best of, um, you know, of the year album list last year, you know, without question. Mm-hmm. Danger Mouse, you know, famous for remixing Jay-Z's Black album, and the Grey album, and... um Barkley. Miles Barkley and Broken Bells, um, you know, some really... With who I saw at South by Southwest perform that album when it first came out was super wow. dope. But Danger Mouse, like again, just like a really... Um, left choice you know out of left field kind of choice of who I'm going to work with um and then Femi Kuti you mentioned uh you know mentioned that uh, I, I have it wrong in the document it's, but it's so, actually Sean, Sean Sian. So, yeah yeah Sean or Sean Kuti um album um you know African Dreams that one was that one to me sonically made a lot of sense because it was Afrobeat and you can hear that evolution in Black Thought and like the roots will kind of go in that go that direction is very very musical album, but very different than the the Danger Mouse album. The Danger Mouse album was dark, and 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 somber. You know, um, this one was really lively and vivacious. It's just it just showcases his diversity.
1: Yeah, And it was to your point about. About Gloria's game, I mean it was it was less than twenty minutes long. I think it was more like twelve. I mean, it's just an in and out project, but very conceptual. And when I think of Black Thought skills, I always think of like, you know, a very syncopated flow and and the way Black Thought wraps around the drums. Like my I was a fan of the roots in the nineties, but my Uh aha moment was thought at work on phrenology to like watch him take the incredible bongo band, you know, Apache and just finesse that. And you saw that in the Chappelle DVD, you know, the the block party too of like when he, I can't think of an MC and we're living in the era of like drumless beats. Right. But the way that thought, and it's only right to have that chemistry that you spoke of of him and Amir, because the way that he works to the drums is phenomenal. So absolutely came alive on that.
0: So since 2020, he's taken a break from the streams of thought albums and uh, you know, created two more projects uh, three now with the L Michaels affair project. Uh, But he says in that interview that uh, that he has too many albums in the works right now to name. Uh, You know, so when he says, you know, 20 projects simultaneously, but with 20 different producers, you kind of start to think he might actually not be exaggerating. And so one of the things he broke, some really incredible news is that Streams of Thought Volume 4 is actually done. Um, and not only is it done. Um, one of the, one of the interesting things about um, this album, and I think the 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 cheat codes one, not not cheat codes, but the 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 Sen Kuti one, is that I don't believe either one of those had features, um, not MC features at least. They were um, maybe singers or whatever. But Streams of Thought Volume Four is like packed. Mm-hmm. In a way like we haven't seen a black thought project maybe ever. Not roots, not black thought, not nothing that he's done. And he named names. So he said, Yassine Bey, and he said they have a song, I think it's called Renaissance. I can't remember. That is, he said, been in the cam for two years, but it's gonna be game changing when it comes out. He says it's gonna shift the game, like big words, right? Um, Pharaoh Monch, Fabulous, Redman, Rick Ross, big crit. Currency, Toby and Wigway, Saba and JID, to name a few. Like, I mean, that is just a murderer's row of lyricists. And, you know, for, for Black Thought, such an all star compilation, got to think that it, he said it could come at any time. So, you know, given his pattern over the last few years of like maybe taking a year off and then dropping two in the same year. I think it's pretty fair to assume that that one's going to come out this year, but, but what, what was your reaction and what do you think to, about that? Yeah, I mean, I liked
1: it and I had to remember one of the, you mentioned the Tiny Desk with um, L. Michael's Affair and, you know, one of the best songs of 2019, which pre-pandemic feels like a lifetime ago, was Education, you know, which had Gibbs and Mad Lib and Yasin Bay and Black Thought, I and mean, we covered it on the site. Um, but to see this feature, I totally agree. And, and the roots have had albums in later years that had Blue and Fonte and different people in the mix, you know, even Rising Down with Yassine Bey and Styles P. But this one, it does sound really, really special. And I wholeheartedly agree. I have a feeling we get this in Q3 or Q4. Um, and I love the fact of, I hate it as a media person, but I, I love the fact of a surprise release. Like, um, that just keeps fans on the edge of their seats. Is every Thursday, I'm like, oh, what's coming out tomorrow to never be ready? Uh, I love that. Like, you could wake up to it tomorrow.
0: Yeah. And like the other ones, again, a pro- producer who uh, would not be an obvious choice. Um, it goes by the name of 14KT. And KT worked on Elzai's Lead Poison, uh, Sky Zoo, Diamond District. Uh, you know, he is from Michigan, claims Detroit um but he has been you know he's 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 a great producer obviously but not someone that you would necessarily that wouldn't be like probably in the first five or ten names you would mention when you think about who's going to produce the next black thought project
1: no i mean we've covered him on the site a number of times but you know i didn't see that coming and yeah it was actually james poyser who's one of one of the founding members of the soul and i believe now an official member of the roots and, and comes from kind of that jazzy jeff um our art, uh, art of j- touch of jazz pedigree, but, you know, he said to, I guess thought he's like, yo, I met this dude. He's a brilliant producer. He said, he's a huge fan. He has this one beat. He wants to play for you. And, you know, thought says they chopped it up. He sent the beat and the song was called black and it became the first song that two of them recorded. And then to your point, Yasin Bay uh, got on it on streams of thought four and thought says, and, and again, like I think in verse, Black Thought is, you know, very complimentary of himself and very complimentary of his art, as he should be. I've never found him to be one like a West Side Gun that's in interviews, like, yo, we're the greatest ever. But Black Thought says it's a timeless classic. It's been in my vault for a couple of years. And like you said, it could come out at any time. Um, So, yeah, exciting stuff.
0: Crazy, man. So I can't wait for that. Uh, But now that we're, like, in the Black Thought, you know, it's almost like a like a fantasy uh, game in terms of like the different, like MCs he's got on this, uh, I had a thought, like, who do you think would be Black Thought's next ideal production partner? Like, you know, so obviously he's worked with greats both on full projects and individual albums, I mean, individual songs, you know, he's, he's worked with Premiere, he's worked with almost anyone you can think of. Uh, for me, uh, I think about Alchemist, would be like, you know, very near the top of my list because we're talking about like my favorite producer of the moment working with one of my favorite MCs and both like to work with uh, one other person on projects. Mm -hmm. You know, Alchemist has done that several times over the last few years and, and Black Thought has too. I think that would be a super, and Dark Chords and things like that that I think would really speak to what Black Thought likes to do, soulful. Mad Lib, I think, because he fits, he checks a lot of those boxes too. And is you know, obviously done great work with Freddie Gibbs and doom and, and so forth. I think the two of them could make some magic together um, Two kind of like out of the box ones for me are justice league um, because black thought likes instrumentation. You know, we see that with L Michaels affair. We've seen it with uh, some Kuti and, and other, and
1: obviously the roots. So like that Rick Ross type of justice league.
0: Yes, not not just us, not from uh, North Carolina Justice, you know, um, league uh, from Rick Ross, like uh, Aston Martin music and um, uh, the Lil Wayne song with Jeezy. um, um,
1: I know the one you mean, but I can't. Yeah. uh,
0: um, And so that I think could be epic just because they make epic beats and I could hear Black Thought just murdering a a track. In fact, I could hear him on that Lil Wayne um, and Jesus song. I'll look it up in a second. But like. I could hear him just absolutely destroying that. And then another one I can think of is Conductor Williams, uh, because, again, very dark samples. um, You know, I think his work with Makami, um, like the Stellar Ray Theory, uh, songs like that were just phenomenal. And I could hear Black Dot smashing, smashing stuff with all those producers what about you
1: those are those are all great answers i won't dispute any of them one that came to my mind is a guy you know who is starting to come back into the scene a bit high tech i mean i just love the way that high tech was going about production in the early 2000s and you know the stuff he did with 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 um you know mood and and obviously reflection eternal brilliant stuff i mentioned bird's eye view i'm gonna static Selecta. i'd love to see them expound on that chemistry big time and static like Alchemist, who you mentioned, is super prolific, always down to work, and I think has gotten even better with time at, like, yo, I'm setting aside these beats for this person. Um, you know, especially coming off of the James Poyser introduction, I would love to see Jazzy Jeff in Black Thought. I think that Philly could use that. And, you know, Black- Jeff has always had his solo series, and I know he did, um, you know, he's done that, that project with Fest. But I would love to see Jeff, you know, fully in his Philly hip hop roots with a with a rhyme partner, and I think Thought and Jeff could be huge. And I'll give you one more, um, and this one might be a little bit of a reach, but it makes sense to me for the same reasons you said. Justice League live instrumentation. I'd love to see Black Thought with Organized noise. Um, and those guys, um, you know, Sleepy Rico Wade and Ray Murray have been, you know, they put out an EP late last year. They're doing stuff they're, they're, they're around. And I would love to see, you know, we saw what they've done with Andre 3000, another phenomenal goat level MC. So why not Tariq Trotter?
0: Man, I think organized noise would be epic, especially if they tap back into that initial outcast sound would be incredible. Even like uh, in due time, like organized noise, just the soulful baseline, just just crazy. The song I was thinking about was Luxury Tax with, uh, with Lil Wayne, Rick Ross and Jeezy. It just, (laughs) Uh, Justice League just demolished that. Um, so another one I think that, you know, is more obvious, but I think they could go in unobvious, uh, down an unobvious road is DJ Premier. Um, you know, obviously he worked with with Hammond Royce on Prime and, and I think a couple other times, but um, hearing what Premier did for Absol on Gotta Rap and then hearing what that translated into on NPR's Tiny Desk, with the horns and like I could hear them just going in a epic direction. So, you know, but whatever it may be, I hope that some of these guys are part of the, the 20 that thought is working on, or if not, if he hears this or someone gives him word, I would love to um, plant a few seeds with some of those, you know? Yeah,
1: absolutely. hundred percent agree. So do you think, I mean, we mentioned it at the top and what that 2017 flex freestyle meant is black thoughts still underrated?
0: I think he is, but for different reasons. You know, I think that uh, he's firmly established himself now uh, outside of the roots. And so uh, he's not overshadowed by the, the, the collective, the group, you know, or, or Quest or, or whoever. Um, but I think that he's done it so well for so long that he's made the exceptional look effortless. You know, I think that It's like how people got used to Michael Jordan and how if he didn't score, if he only scored 28, that he had a bad game. You know, for most people, 28 is a great game. But for Jordan, it was not only not great, but maybe, but subpar. It was below average for him, literally. You know, um, I think that Black Thought has set the bar so high for himself with stuff like that freestyle, with, uh, you know, references to Dostoevsky and like, you know, esoteric philosophers and in, in the same sentence with Richard Pryor movies and stuff like that. Like, I I never saw, that, yeah. Yeah. I think when people, I think if people were to step back and really acknowledge what this man does day in and day out on top of producing plays and being part of the house band for Jimmy Fallon and, you know, uh, teaching classes and all the things that he does, for him to still be rapping at this level and be getting even better at it and at at this pace, I think that again he should be in a top five discussion fifty percent of the time. I don't, like, just I don't know, but I, I I get the sense that he's in that discussion ten percent of the time. You know what I mean? Like that's just my knee jerk thought, but I, I I still think that he's underrated by those standards, meaning that he should be. In the GOAT discussion in earnest for the majority of people, hmm. what about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that he's still underrated in the sense that I wish people would do what they do, what they did for Jay Z's Khaled verse for a black thought verse. I think we saw a glimpse of what that could look like in 2017 of like, wow, let's analyze these, whether it was 13 or 17 minutes. Um, but I think that. You know, I know some people get fatigued with the goat conversation sometimes, but one of the reasons why I believe it needs to happen as often as it does and why folks like you and I will continue to have it is to amplify the argument, and I think that it's there. The proof is in the pudding. I think Black Thought is a little less underrated every day. I think be, with it's not him changing. It's the culture and the listeners catching up to him. And, you know, I you, and I, I say that about Jay and, and, and Khalid, but you know, a dissect podcast. You know, I, if you really pay attention on what this man is doing, it's all there. It's all there, a hundred percent, and it's going to continue to pay dividends. That uh, that goat level status.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned um, Jay Dilla and uh, you know Black Thought working with him. One of the the first interviews we ever did with him, the first I did with him, was um, at Dilla Week back in twenty sixteen where I talked to him and this is on our YouTube too. He gave an amazing story about um, new year's day with Jay Dilla, basically where it was the day where there's a caravan of artists who would go and, you know um, you know, go to Jay Dilla's house in his basement and basically just be there waiting to get first dibs on beats that he made. He handed out beat tapes and like, you know, first come first serve of those donuts. And so um that was an amazing, amazing story. And we got a, a deeper glimpse into Jay Dilla's life recently. You know, um, last week, a Hulu documentary dropped, uh, which uh, I want to talk about that, man. You know, so first of all, like having having read Dan Charnas' book, Dilettan, um, it is one of the greatest music books I've ever read. Um, facts, facts. Um, one of the books, greatest books I've read. It is so incredibly well-researched and thoughtfully written in that not only does it tell the story of Jay Dilla's life and it's a complicated story. And he tells it warts and all. It also tells about how Dilla made up a completely new form of music time, music theory. So it's Dilla time, like his, his time, his musical time, phenomenal book. So, uh, having read that, um, I was going to go into any documentary with very, very high standards. Um, but before I get into what, what I thought, I want, I want to hear what, what your thought was on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that book, we talked about it last year on the podcast. Dan Charnas' book is a must-own for any hip-hop fan. And if you are a casual Dilla fan or, you know, love hip-hop, but just admit that you're not up on his greatness, even more reason to own it. Phenomenal, phenomenal must-own book. And yeah, I mean, this this documentary has been out a few days before I I, I watched it. and um it was it's through it's on hulu it's it's through fx productions but it's also in tandem with the new york times and they've done a series of kind of um one hour plus documentaries uh my fiance last year i guess it was might have been the year before wanted to watch there was some going on the um what's the word the you know it the like britney spears control uh the what was the term everyone was using Oh,
0: yeah, that she was signed to her, um, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll think of it, yeah.
1: Her father, but yeah, so yeah, we... Conservatorship, we were like conservatorship. Conservatorship. So I, I watched that, and I'm I'm just a documentary junkie, so I've watched some of the other things, but I was surprised um, that there was something on Dilla. But I came into it probably like you with, um, because, I mean, just coming off of a Black Thought discussion, I know that um, 215 Productions, you know, uh, Questlove and Black Thoughts Company... Um, as well as Joseph Patel, who worked on Summer of Soul, Jasbo, they're all working, and it's been announced on, on Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, an upcoming Dilly documentary of sorts. And this one kind of seemed like to pop up. So I came into it, and I'll say this with like, um, a little bit of, I can't say skepticism, but just like, uh, huh, this is interesting. But that's how you felt too? That's how I felt too. Um,
0: and, you know, one of the things like for, that, that, kind of set the tone for me was that I put in Dilla in the Hulu search and there was Same. Nothing, that, nothing that came up. It was not until uh you know you know CJ my girlfriend said you gotta put in N-E. New York Times yeah, oh I put in I, I put in NE for New York Times right and to its credit like I put in N E and it pulled up New York Times but like to t- for a Dilla documentary to not come up under Dilla or J. You you had to put ne like how would you even know that like there's yeah. not an ne in the man's name it was it was crazy and so that that um, that's how I started watching you know um, but then I also having read the book um, it felt to me like uh, it took massive leaps you know there was a lot of stuff missing. Um, to me, Dilla's life would need to be a five part docu-series at at minimum, given like how complex the book was. I thought it was notable that Dan was not part of it. They used a lot of stock footage and repeatedly they had this, you know, uh, kind of reel of tape showing like multiple times throughout. Uh, it seemed to me like, uh, they didn't get a lot of people, uh, that, you know, were critical to Dilla's life. Um, and for some people they, Got a lot of Red Bull media footage, like for um, Q Tip and
1: Ali Shahid Muhammad.
0: and Ali Shahid Muhammad. Like it seemed to me like they were on a very, very modest budget, and um, and it showed. You know that doesn't take away from the people who were who were in it because it did get some great people, and I know you you can talk to that. But for me, I, I was disappointed. I saw some photos I'd never seen before, but not a ton. Maybe one or two. You know, and even the photos they used. They use repeatedly also, um, you know, there's some, some cool footage of the Soul Aquarians that I'd never seen of a famous photo shoot, but, yeah. um, but man, I, I, I left, I left uh, feeling uh, wanting more um, and feeling a little bit
1: underserved. I, I would echo that personally. Um what I liked about it for me, a lot of those photos I hadn't seen. And Dilla's is always a challenge to find photos of. Um, I never, I never knew James. Um, I used to communicate with hex murder who people know through random acts, uh, Sean price and black milk. Um, but you know, he would, he would say like Dilla read this article and he liked it. Like I remember those conversations in the, in the like 2003, 2004, what I liked about the film was, um, talking about dilla's role in the umma and the Uma, um which is something i never knew i mean i knew that he played a role in it but i never knew the complexities of that until i read dan charnas's book and i believe a lot of that came from that book um you know so that was interesting i have I, rafael Sadiq is one of the people that that did interviews and i completely and i'm embarrassed to say this, i forgot that he was part of that production unit i always think of it as tip ali and 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 Dilla. But I forgot that that Raf was there, Ray. Um, that part was interesting. I thought it was interesting. There was a business aspect. Um, some of the members of Dilla's legal team appear mm. and they speak about just how in arrears his estate was after he passed. And I sensed that that was part of the impetus in the New York Times getting behind this. Um, coming off of the Britney Spears conservatorship stuff. But I uh yeah, I mean, it was interesting to learn of a guy that was, was making sixty-five to seventy-five thousand dollars a track in the early two thousands, but also, um, you know, kind of like backdooring songs for, you know, sometimes a couple grand, and that was part of what I think made Dilla dope. He would be working with guys like Fat Cat, who he came up with, and you know Frank and Dank, and all these different people at the same time. You know he's doing Grammy nominated stuff with common or stuff with the roots or buster rhymes. So that was interesting. But yeah, there were there were big gaps. They never mention they never mention um Madlib's name. They never mention Peanut Butter Wolf's name. They never mention Stone's throw. They do talk about donuts. There was a big talk
0: about his kids and, until like the last like 30 seconds. Yeah. The
1: very end. And and here's what I sense. And I don't um you know infinite love and respect to Maureen, Ma Yancey. I actually got you know a bit choked up when she was recounting Dilla's last minutes um that's a heavy heavy thing um but you know when you're dealing we've we've seen the same thing with uh you know Tupac's legacy when Afini was alive and Biggie's legacy with his mom I have a feeling that there there's a bit in order to speak and get access to some of the folks Dilla's sister his brother Illa J is in it you know obviously you're going to leverage some of the narrative and i think i thought it was an interesting watch i don't regret watching it but i didn't leave with um the sense of is satiation the word i wasn't satisfied like i was or surprised when i read dan's book
0: yeah for sure i mean and you know to your point they did get some great interviews right like so having Ma dukes is crucial you can't do a of documentary without her so that was great. Uh, it's great to see Black Milk on there, mm-hmm. Frank Nitty, Fat Cat, House Shoes was on
1: there, Illa, uh, Illa J, John Yancey.
0: Jazzy Jeff, Jeff is Jeff. incredible. Yeah. Like, Jeff And he Jeff was incredible. He
1: recreates yeah. some samples, which I thought was really cool, because, I mean, like, to your point of having to search this through the New York Times, in a lot of ways, this film is, like, I imagine my parents And I think it was a little bit esoteric, you know, just in terms of you need to you need to know the hip hop universe to watch this, um, you know, to appreciate these figures in this context. But the way that they showed Dilla's sampling techniques with Jazzy Jeff lays out, I really appreciated that. I mean, I knew where those records came from, but to watch Jeff's jubilation and showing his admiration, especially as somebody who worked with Slum Village very early in their career, I really, really, really appreciated that um and you know you mentioned a lot of the stock footage much of the documentary is built around a 2004 interview that, that Dilla did in Sweden I'd never heard that interview and, and Dilla you know I mentioned Black Thought and Premier kind of being artists that came into the spotlight for as phenomenal as Dilla is he was never like an interview guy you know he was somebody who really didn't like you know and they showed in the in the doc like stopped really going to New York shunned um so much of that so to hear a very lucid delighted um powerful interview like that was really cool
0: yeah Judge Jeff was great uh, probably one of my favorite parts of the of the documentary as a whole definitely challenging to do a documentary on Dilla because to your point there's not a ton of footage on him and there's also not a lot of photos out there um you know I think that uh you know overall it was okay uh but like I said in the in the backdrop of the the book that we had and also knowing how many people were not part of it or were done so through stock footage you know took it down like a a few notches for me you know um but you know if you're a dilla fan i don't think uh i don't think you would skip it i just think you go on with with your expectations managed and it is what it is
1: yeah and as like that's happened to me with like being a, a death row and a tupac fan numerous times i'll see something and i can't wait or it was funny, I have the cheaper version of Hulu where I feel like I get ads every seven minutes. And every one of those ads was for Dear Mama, the upcoming Tupac joint. And uh, I, I'm really excited to see that.
0: They did have a lot of people who were there with him throughout the journey. You know, family members, uh, Frank Nitti, um, you know, house shoes, like people who were there with him from the beginning were, were pretty strongly represented. So I thought that part was
1: dope. Yeah, good point. And also, I mean, I never paid too much attention to the Dilla estate stuff, but I know I've I've watched it happen in real time, as you may have too. Like a lot of the the releases, the posthumous stuff will be on the DSPs and then get pulled. And sometimes I'll see a headline about you know management and and Ma Dukes and just speaking about mishandlings. And it is really sad to know that Dilla was a father of two, and they say like they were never received a cent from his estate until recent years. When this man died, like Tupac, like a lot of other artists, um, he was in a great deal of debt. And when somebody that is rising to greatness passes away, the powers that be, i.e. attorneys and the inter- you know internal revenue service pop up and they say, well, you know, where was all this money? Where's the paper trail? When you talk about somebody who's working in their basement that might be taking literally like, you know, 5000 in a bag for a beat that's gonna cause and it's it's just hard for me once again and it to see a tremendous black artist whose whose heirs have not benefited from that and that's really sad and it seems like it's it's working its way better but i just hope that dilla's family from his mom to his kids continue to um reap the fruits of his genius
0: yeah, the, Dan's book obviously gets into that to a very large degree. I think it's close to 100 pages or so dedicated to Dilla posthumously, maybe even more than that. And he just released a paperback edition that uh, goes into it even more extensively. Uh, but it was very complicated, very messy, as unfortunately these things tend to be. And uh, But yeah, documentary was very, very light on all of that.
1: For sure, for sure. So what else caught your eye this week? So
0: another person who was in the news is Snoop Dogg, who um, is not often out of the news. Uh, (laughs) You know, Snoop has been in the news pretty consistently since, you know, 1992 when Deep Cover came out. Um, But this was more of a retrospective look at his entire life and the early days in particular by someone who was there um, at the beginning of his career and, and is as much of a West Coast OG as he is. And, um, that was Big Boy, uh, you know, legendary on-air personality, in radio in LA. Got really the the full the the full like uh, Snoop interview. He he uh, his goal is to get untold stories, those things that people haven't heard before, and he definitely succeeded in this one. Heard, heard a bunch of stuff that we'd never heard before. Um, some examples are that. Snoop slept in his car for two months when he was 17. I had no idea about that. You know, a lot of times we get the Snoop story, you know, when he and Warren G and Nate Dogg are in 213 and, you know, trying to get their tape to Dr. Dre and so forth. And the story kind of begins there. But, you know, to hear that Snoop was not only out of the house at age 17, but but sleeping in his car for two months was pretty crazy for me.
1: Yeah, what I liked about the interview too, I will say this is the definitive like YouTube-era interview with Snoop. I always enjoyed GGN. I always like to watch Snoop just kind of fly off the cuffs and they're smoking with a guest, and he would just drop jewels. We covered a lot of them on AFH. But this one, um, you know, recently when Jay Cole sat down with the Golden State Warriors GM, Bob Myers, you and I were talking about how hip-hop is kind of losing its foothold of interviewing its superstars. And, you know, the Drakes and the Kendricks and the Coles are going kind of outside the culture and it was DJ academics that had a huge problem with that. And we discussed it. And this is a great reminder. You're not going to get this interview with anybody outside. Like big boy knows the score. He knows the context. He's been covering Snoop for, like you said, all of these years. And it really is an intimate conversation. That's, that's for the public. Like big boy asks, as I'm listening, I listened yesterday during a six hour drive. Every time I'd hear something, Big Boy followed up with the question I wanted to hear. And Snoop was not rushed. He wasn't, like, it is filmed, but he's not, like, playing for the cameras. It's a great documentary conversation. And Snoop even said some really interesting things about, like, his wife, who is very much part of his business um, and has been, you know, for at least 25 years. And Snoop even says, like, when they were dating, it took them quite some time to get their relationship to the next level. And we all think of Snoop as this, like guy who's inspired by superfly and all of these different you know characters that that might not have um hurdles with with women and he explains he's like i wanted her to be my wife because she made me wait and it made me trust her differently and he speaks about you know how how aggressive nate dog was back in the day and really just talks about um those early days of two and three and his nervousness around dr dre which sounds like he says, Dr. Dre came to Warren's house to play, um, what is it, Easier Said Than Done? Is that the joint? Uh, uh, no,
0: Easy uh, Easy Does It. Easy right, Does uh, It. No, yeah, Easy Does It,
1: yep. And, you know, how Snoop was just hoping the entire time that Warren wasn't going to say, my man here raps. And it was hilarious. I'm laughing as I listen, because eventually Warren, who we know to be the, like, exuberant, like, enthusiastic, like, let's make this happen. Ayo, Andre, my man. And Dre's like, yeah, I got to go get something to eat. I'm laughing as I listen to that. Just a truly, truly, truly phenomenal interview with a lot of heart and soul.
0: Yeah. And it was cool to hear like inside dope on like the dynamics with him and, and Warren and Nate Dog. You know, like you said, Nate Dog was out of the three of them, the most gangster, it sounds like, uh, yeah. you know, even though he was a dude singing. But he also talked about how protective Warren G was of him. And, you know, because Warren G was so territorial with Snoop. He actually had a, a like you know kind of a little bit of tension and friction with with um, Nate Dog Warren G that is um, because he wanted to make sure that you know he knew that you know he was like Snoop's number one dog you know and then he talked about how Snoop actually wanted to give up at one point you know he had gone to some meeting they said they wanted him to sound more like DJ Quick and he came back and he threw all of his rhymes away uh, his entire like you know collection of of, of rhymes he'd written. And supposedly Warren G. fished him out of the trash and, re- and literally refused to let Snoop quit. Uh, so, you know, just even hearing stuff like that, that Snoop like was considering bouncing. And if not for Warren G., we might have never even heard of them, Was was really crazy. But I think one of the craziest stories was um, Snoop had a deal on the table and he Was going to sign that deal was a Friday, they said, listen, you know, come to the studio on Monday, we'll get it going. Um, And then, you know, um, something happened over the weekend, which changed the course of West Coast rap history. You You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great setup. So one of the things I've never realized is that, you know, Snoop was around Ruthless to a point. You know, Warren G, as a young budding producer, had made, you know, Dre is still at Ruthless, although kind of acrimoniously has already kind of one foot out the door and is doing things on the side that doesn't sound like Eazy-E and Jerry Heller were aware of, you know, in terms of just creatively speaking, you know, the, the early iterations of Death Row. And I think the DOC is very much part of that. But Snoop is is being a hanger on and coming to the studio as a member of this group that's selling, you know, that's I don't even know if they were selling them, but like hustling tapes around Long Beach and he's sitting on the couch. And one of the big groups in like 1991 or one of the big acts on Ruthless was above the law. You know, at that point, I believe they've already put out an album and an EP. And, you know, geniusly Ruthless has positioned Big Hutch, you know, the kind of the front man of ATL to be the next Dre. Like we saw something similar later on with, with Dre and Daz, but like he's producing some of the joints around and starting to build a team around him as they're working on their next big project. And Snoop being this guy on the couch was kind of, you know, like, Hey, a little homie, we're going to get you on a song. And Snoop talks about this in the interview. I've heard, I've heard Hutch speak of this. We actually, I interviewed Hutch for Ambrosia like twenty sixteen, but I've never heard Snoop speak on it before, and you know he says that at the time, you know it was it was an offer, but it was tepid and and Snoop puts it in perspective, like above the law is on, but they also have cocaine, who's also from Pomona, and you know kind of like family to those guys, so he's next, but hey, we're building this album and we want to give you a feature, and we've seen this in hip hop. I mean, you think of you know, live at the barbecue, um, you've got Nas, you've got Joe Fatal, you've got Akineli. Like, in the early 90s, a feature, could you could do a lot with it, but it didn't always guarantee something. And, you know, at that same time, um, they were like, come to the studio Monday, over the weekend is when, when, and I think a lot of hip-hop fans have heard this story, Warren G is kind of DJing a pool party for Dre and slides in something from Snoop or 213. And Dre stops what he's doing, presumably having a good time. Says, you know, play that again. And it ultimately culminates in Dre on that same Monday saying, bring your man to the studio. And let's remember what I just said of, of you know some years prior, Snoop being nervous around Dre. But Snoop said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but like yeah, ultimately
0: got Dre got he got Dre got him on the phone that Sunday night.
1: Yeah, he didn't he even was believe like,
0: it. It's like, yo, come to the studio tomorrow. And so he had two invitations to come to the
1: studio at the same day, but he accepted one. He accepted one. And, you know, ultimately, I, I think it had to do with the fact, and, and Snoop alludes to it, and I really appreciate this, because I think we've all had these situations where you're kind of like out there like, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm here. And somebody's showing interest, but maybe not the interest that you feel you deserve in whatever capacity, professional, personal, and Dre now shows interest. And Snoop said, well, surely, you know, if you would want me Monday, Tuesday will be cool. When he goes and does this thing with Dre. And what I loved about this interview and what I didn't say previously is, you know, I'd mentioned Black Thought being able to pull up that verse at the De La event. Snoop, for, despite all of the cannabis, is able in this interview to remember the exact rhymes and spit them perfectly to stuff that we've heard and stuff that we haven't. But the very rhymes that changed his career and got him noticed. And in that turn of events, going to beat with Dre instead of ATL um, on on that Monday is what ultimately, you know, leads to deep cover. And boom, here we are.
0: Yeah, is uh, it is a another sliding door moment that would have absolutely changed West Coast history. We don't know if there would have been, even been a deep cover like the, the, the future of death row records might have been completely different because you think about the impact that snoop had on the chronic um and then obviously doggy style and then the dog pound and so forth like it would have potentially you don't even know if dr dre i don't want to be just hyperbolic about it but you don't even know if dr dre becomes dr dre you know he he's done it so many times but but we've seen he, he's not foolproof, you know, uh, people think of 2001 being the first Aftermath release, but it it's wasn't, not. you know, Um the, 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 the compilation album was not very good, you know, it had been there, done that, and that was pretty much it, even the firm didn't do well, you know, so, and that was with established superstar MCs, so I think you cannot say enough about how important Snoop was to the legacy of death row and, and obviously Dr. Dre as well. Well, he
1: does. It's interesting. And, you know, he says he went to the solar building, which, you know, put out the soundtrack for deep cover and, you know, ultimately provided some certainly exposure, but reportedly some seed money to what would become death row and deep cover. You know, Snoopy originally approached as if he was writing for Dre as others had during NWA and ultimately, and he's very complimentary of Suge Knight as well as Dre, at some point in the turn of events decided, like, no, you're going to rap on it too. And Snoop, it's it's just such a good story, you know, says that in the third verse, he approaches Dre and was like, we're going to wrap the third one together. And Dre's on board and the video Snoop originally thought he was showing up for a photo shoot only to discover the video. And it's phenomenal. But the interesting subtext here is, You know, that coincides with obviously a very um, acrimonious exit for Dre at Ruthless, you know, on the chronic.
0: One other thing about Deep Cover, a crazy story that he talks about is that uh, the song wasn't even finished. And he talks about what a hustle Snoop, that Suge Knight was, because Snoop, Suge had the Sony executives, Sony put out the soundtrack for Deep Cover on the phone, told them the record was done. And had Snoop get on the phone and rap the last verse to, to it, wrap uh, a verse to it, and cut him off, like, you know, mid-verse. Snoop was basically freestyling just to, like, prove that the song was done, even though it wasn't. But, like, that was the hustle that Suge um, had that Snoop respected. And maybe this is where you're going, um Uh, But, you know, he, he gave his flowers to Shug pretty prominently in the interview, too. He
1: did. And Snoop admits that. I mean, that song, whenever I think of it, I hear the chorus, you know, 187 on an undercover cop. Snoop said that he was busted by an undercover. I mean, at that point in his life, that sleeping in his car era into his early 20s, he was in and out of, you know, correctional facilities. And he was like, you know, I knew the premise of the movie. I knew and he was able to write from his reality and probably exaggerate elements of it. But, you know, that, like I started, like that coincides with, with Dre's exit. And Dre's exit marks, you know, the nail in the coffin of NWA. Cube had already left a year or two earlier. And you start to see that on The Chronic and Easy es you know, it's on Dr. Dre EP. They started dissing each other. And the second time, you know, you see Snoop within months of this and he's dissing Easy e in the, you know, F with Dre Day video and on that song. But what's interesting is, and AFH has covered this, That those two groups, um, there's a lot of argument and debate over the architecture of G-Funk. And the, the album that I presume that Snoop would have recorded to, whether he or not he made it, is Black Mafia Life, which came out in early, in early 1993, that album has Tupac on it. And you know just a, a few weeks and months before that, Dre puts out The Chronic. And there's a couple of places on those albums that they use the same sample. Um, you know, Black Ball, I Feel Life has a song, Never Missing a Beat, which has the same funkadelic, not just knee sample as F with Dre Day. Um, and there's another case, too. The song Pimp Clinic has the same refrain, the swing down sweet chariot as Dr. Dre's Let Me Ride. I mean, both of those Dre songs were big singles from that album with videos. And in the middle, you have Warren G, who's also part of G-Funk and, you know, really shines by the time you have Ain't No Fun and and regulate. And above the law, let's be real, I love that group. I listen to them all the time, but they never, you know, Death Row's ascent comes at a time where above the law has kind of reached a bit of a plateau and above the law ends up leaving Ruthless. And it's really cool in the interview is, you know, Big Boy asked the question, they talk about, again, this is insider hip hop knowledge and it's disgusting. Like, even the chorus, you know, Snoop says 187 on Undercover Cop. Well, Big Hutch's name that he used throughout his career as an alias was Cold 187 Um. So it's like in the era of subliminals where you have Kane and Kim dropping these lines that might mean something to one another, is Snoop getting on to kind of throw a snub at ATL. And, you know, it's wild, too, because Snoop says, like, he coached Hutch's son in football years later. Like, they are great friends. Both of those guys worked together on the Dr. Dre Compton album in 2015. Um, cocaine, the guy who was next in line for Above the Laws, their protege, you know, ends up singing uncredited vocals on The Chronic. Like, there's all of these different different universes going on. And you and I are big on like, what if moments and sliding doors, as you said earlier. And it just makes you wonder, like, what would have happened if Snoop would have gone to ATL on Monday or had Dre not shown up that Monday? like entire universes as we know it in hip hop could have changed
0: yeah i don't see the 187 as a snub just because that was the police code for murder but the rest of it is the rest of it is wild and it makes you even though the album above the law album came out a couple months later doesn't mean that those songs weren't recorded and floating around long before and so you know i'm sure that's a point of controversy, but and but that's wild, and the, the fact that he could have been more closely affiliated with ruthless than with with death row, like you know, just again, it just changes the whole trajectory of it.
1: Well, presumably, I mean, Snoop says he witnessed the DOC and the Easy get into an altercation, and he's very cagey about who won, but it, he kind of implies that Easy won, and I I appreciate just the rawness of that element, but it leads me to believe, like one of the things I've always wondered is like f with Dre Day, I always imagined Snoop. As this guy who's like dissing somebody he's never met, you know, which we've seen throughout, you know, rap history, like of, of people getting on, whether you're talking about Roxanne Chante and UTFO on down. And now I'm realizing like, yo, there was doesn't mean it was a big exchange, but Snoop and Eazy-E had at least been in rooms together before that song comes out. And it's just it's wild. It's interesting to me. And the one other thing I'll say is like you talked about who would be a great producer for Black Thought Snoop Dogg is incredibly prolific, and we've seen him do even one-offs with producers, and and oftentimes his albums are built around a small ensemble. I would love to see a Warren G. produce Snoop Dogg album, and I think it's one of the things, you know, Snoop has obviously right now working on an album with Dre, they both say, called Missionary. Years ago, Snoop had flirted with the idea of like Doggy Style 2, I would love to see that album. I think there's so much history there. I think that there are a lot of producers that sometimes lose their original sound or, or, or veer too far away from it. But I think Warren G is a great exception. And I think he is perfectly capable of making the kind of Snoop Dogg album. Like as much as I'm looking forward to this Dre and Snoop one, like make no mistake, that that is my most anticipated album of the moment. Knowing how much Snoop works, I'd love to see that happen and knowing their history which is colored in this interview that would be um that would be a beautiful thing
0: yeah I mean we saw uh, you know part of it with that two on three album they released right like uh, I don't know how much Warren produced on that um but there was some joints on that it, it didn't live up to the height that um that I think people were looking for but you know they definitely did collab you know pretty substantially on that yeah um but yeah, I would love to see that. As I'm seeing it, it's got High Tech was a producer on it, DJ Poo, Knots, some pretty dope producers. You know, ironically, Warren is not producing on that project. Yeah. To your yeah. point, I would I would think Missy Elliott's a producer on it. Yeah, I would think that he would have produced more most of that. But yeah,
1: we got to ask Warren or we got to ask Snoop about that. And I want to do it very respectfully, but I've always been curious about that because it's like. I always thought Pimp C was such a great producer. And then at some point, UGK got so big that they brought outside producers. We've seen that with RZA. We've seen that with Muggs and Cypress Hill. And, you know, in the Warren case, it just like his albums. I mean, he's put out stuff recently and it still sounds so good. I just I don't necessarily need to know why it didn't happen, but I'd love to. And, I, and sadly, Nate's obviously not here. I would like to see more of those guys working together.
0: And to, to you know, going back to the controversies that are are part of the past, you know, one of the claims has always been that Warren G did a lot of ghost producing on Doggy Style. And if you listen to It Ain't No Fun, that is like to me like 100% a hundred percent a Warren G beat, even though I think uh Daz is credited. Um, but you know, um if you I think if you go back and look at Doggy Style, you'll probably hear some strong Warren G influence at the very least. Yeah. Most, Sure. Um, so a couple other things he said um, that were really interesting to me, and we've covered this too, but it might be new to folks who are, are newer to us is that the first night he ever met Tupac was at a, a movie wrap party. I forget what film it was. I think poetic uh, justice was a poetic justice. And so uh, he and pot, the first time they met was on stage, basically um, you know, someone was about to give him the mic and um and give Snoop the mic and Tupac jumped up on stage and grabbed the mic and started rapping. And then Snoop got it and he started rapping too. And they basically were battling each other. And afterwards they were outside and uh, Snoop gave pot or pot gave Snoop his first ever blunt. And Snoop, uh, pot said that, um, or Snoop said that it like basically knocked him off his feet, um, which was, was pretty funny to hear. And he says some uh, pretty sad stuff, too. You know, he says that up until about a week before Tupac died, uh, he and Pac were, you know, nearly best friends. But, you know, within two days of Tupac's death, you know, they had gone to New York shortly before that, flown back. There's a story he tells uh, and it's told many times about like how tense the plane ride was. But Snoop. Was still cool with the guys from Bad Boy, effectively. You know, even though Tupac was embroiled in his battle, Stupe wasn't trying to get down with that, and he says things on the radio to that effect. And he got iced out by Suge and Tupac, and so the very last thing that he, Tupac ever, their very last interaction, Tupac just kind of like waved him off and walked away to his car, and that was the last time he saw him conscious. Um, so you know, pretty um, pretty epic stories, but again, Big Boy incredible incredible listen definitely check that one out too
1: yeah it's definitely one of the best interviews i've heard this year and snoop is somebody who does a lot of press so when you can say that about somebody who's told their story so many times it it says a lot have you ever met snoop i did i actually and I, i was reaching for it not within within an arm's reach i have a uh cover story i did for the source in 2008 And I went to the W hotel on, I think Lexington, you would know, and interviewed Snoop on, it was funny. Like I got the assignment less than 24 hours before I went, he had just put out that very week ego tripping. So literally I got, I went to Best Buy in South Philly, bought the CD, drove to New York, studied up and interviewed. It must've been on a Tuesday night. And in that room, snoop traveled with a whole whole private plane a whole entourage it was dj quick teddy riley uh daz no corrupt um superfly bishop don magic Juan, and one or two other people uh, mr fab and too short and it was crazy and he had done conan he had begun partying i'm telling you the abbreviated version and uh he got to the room and I had to write a cover story. They, they knew that Snoop had the cover. My editor at the source, Ryan Ford, who to this day works with Snoop Dogg and at the Cashmere agency. And I had to the photographer who was a famed hip hop photographer said he wanted to go first before I could ever write, which I think I was a little frustrated by because I'm thinking you're pushing my time with this artist further and further away. And it was getting late into the night, like after midnight. And they took a bunch of photos with Snoop and Snoop said, could you please not use flash bulbs? Like I'm high, they're bugging me. And Snoop, as you know, probably we all have all seen at one time or another, got kind of irritable. And I introduced myself earlier in the night. I was like, yo, I'm here to write the story. Snoop was like, cool, whatever. And the photography session went on forever and ever, ever. And they kept using the flash bulbs. And Snoop was like, I'm not doing no interview. I'm going to bed, I'm done with this. And I had to walk up to him. At in hand as you say i said snoop i promise you this I, i've driven a long way to be here i'm doing this article i love the album i have thoughtful questions i will give you the shortest interview of your career and snoop said to me okay he said the sh- he says to me hi brother bye brother and he said that's the shortest interview of my career peace oh, and man. And he turned around and then he punked me like he turned around and goes, I said, he smiled like he was polite, but clearly perturbed with the night. And I said, I will ask you 10 questions. And I pulled out my sheet of paper because I didn't operate on my phone back then. And I started crossing off questions. I said, these are the questions. He said, let's talk. We stepped over to the window. He had a big, he had the whole floor of the W, top floor. We stepped over. I had my 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 <laughs> my recorder and I interviewed him. And I said, I looked at my watch. This is a cover story for The Source. And while The Source wasn't what it once was, it was still a monthly, very high-profile magazine. What year is this again? 2008. Okay. And I do my interview. I said, see? And I point to my phone, and I go, I was two minutes over. It was 12 minutes. And Snoop, I asked him hard questions. Um, And and I said, I got to make this into a cover story. And Snoop said... All right, thank you. And I'll reach for the door. The person I was talking to was Daz and Superfly that night because I was a fan of theirs. And Quick and Teddy Riley were busy. They produced a lot of that album. And I kind of reached for my coat and said my goodbyes. And Snoop said, hey, stop. He said, I want you to know something. That was the best interview I've ever had. And I'm not telling you that because it was 12 minutes. I'm telling you that because you stood in here for four hours or whatever it was. He said, you didn't say shit. You didn't puff your chest up and try to get it done. You waited your turn and you showed respect to every other person in this room. And the least I could do is tell you that. You asked the right questions. And it's funny. He mentioned, he goes, you know, I always thought it was Kevin Powell, my conversation with him. But he goes, I'm going to give it to this one right now. And man, I left. I got on the elevator. My friend Stacy was waiting for me downstairs. She lived locally. And I drove home just running on um, pure... Adrenaline. Thank you. And I wrote the story through the night and at noon, I handed it into my editors at the source. And the funny part is, is right after I sent it, Snoop's publicist, I think at the time it was, he was still on Geffen, called me, my phone. I had a business line with caller ID at the time, landline phone. And I look and it's a Geffen. I'm going, oh, shoot. And she called and she said, hey, 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 I heard it went well. And uh, can I put Snoop through? He wants to talk to you. I said sure and Snoop just said hey I want you to know something I smoke a lot of weed but I meant every word I said last night and you did oh, a good wow. job and I said to him one other thing and I said man you know what we got in common we're both diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fans and he lit up because that was the year not to rub it in but we were on a Super Bowl run later that year and we bonded and that was that and I, I've never spoken to Snoop since then I turned in the story I'll pull it in a second. It's got the LA Lakers covers. It's yellow and yellow and um purple. The sad truth is I never got paid for it. And you know, I probably spent several hundred dollars of my own money, but that was when the source was changing ownership. And the people that were leaving said not it, and the people that now own it said not it. But I um I did ask my editor for a favor one time for a charity and snoop wore some special custom-made gloves and took a really dope photo for the charity for me and i always like to me at the time that money was so necessary to my life so necessary and i never got it but i survived and i hope to tell snoop that conversation one day because it uh it meant a lot to my career you know for better and worse that's
0: crazy that's a fantastic story i know you told me that before but it's always good to hear it uh, we're still going to work on trying to get you that source money. Uh, I, know, <laughs> yeah. I know both the past owners and the current owner. So uh, next time I, I might mention that. Now, I've, I've gotten to meet Snoop twice. Um, both times were very, very similar in that, you know, he was literally in the middle of a circle of people, like, you know, three or four people, not his, his group, holding court. And Snoop is like a comedian, you know, when he wants to be. He's one of the most charismatic personal people I've ever encountered. And for literally a half an hour, he just sat there entertaining people like just off the cuff humor, you know, and one was at, um, it was the first ever Jay-Z, uh, rock nation brunch. And, mm. uh, I was with Stephen Hill, Stephen Snoop myself and maybe one or two other people. And that was incredible. The other one was at a, um, after Grammy party, um, the other chance one, cause chance was there too. Um, and it was in the back in the patio amigos were there as, uh, uh probably the last time i saw the three of them together just you know things have changed in a major way of course but that was the same thing man uh just holding court entertaining people um just a really 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 charismatic seemingly great dude you know and this interview i think showcased that part of him you know um not only was he Going back and talking about his own life, but was a deep talking about his deep fandom of hip hop, you know, and, you know, the the legends for him and what it felt like to hear the message for the first time and things like that. It was just really, really well done.
1: Yeah, I encourage everyone and, and we're going to be covering it on the site a little bit with this conversation, too. Yeah. So a couple quick
0: things. Um, this one I found to be um, interesting, you know, so the Forbes list comes out every year where they talk about what. Artists have what amount of money? I've been told by people in in the know that it is wildly, wildly inaccurate, um, but in both directions. Um, There's some people on there who don't have anything close to what they're saying, and others who are not on there who are truly, truly like wealthy. Mm -hmm. 50 Cent says he's been a billionaire since 2007. He did an interview, um, which looked like it was like more of a paid sponsorship uh, for one of his spirits. Um, And that one was a head scratcher for me because you know the vitamin water deal that he did was in 2007 at the time that brand sold for 4.2 billion 4.1 billion dollars people thought that he had a 10 percent cut of the deal which would have been 400 million you know so that would have made him a 400 million an air plus i don't know maybe 100 200 from other stuff um but it turned out later on that the The actual size was more likely to be 100 million. And, uh, you know, 50 Cent since then has declared bankruptcy. Some of that is funny money manipulation because he was doing um, uh, child custody stuff. Um, But, you know, for him to say he was a billionaire since 2007, interesting to me. I could see it maybe now with the power franchise and stuff like that. But one of the things that I found to be particularly ironic is that, like I said, I think this was um, almost like an infomercial for one of his spirit brands. The fact that 50 Cent sells spirits in and of itself is wild because 50 is a teetotaler. You know, he doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. To my knowledge, he hasn't for decades, if ever, Um, and he even goes to the point of putting ginger ale in a champagne bottle uh, to, to swig, and it looked like he had some ginger ale or whatever in the glass on this interview, too. But it made me think, you know, Future took a lot of heat recently, maybe in the last couple of years, over promoting Lean, the use of Lean so much in his music when the truth was that he had, you know, completely detoxed and stopped doing it for two years before that came out. Um, Do we think that that's any different than what 50 is doing with Spirits?
1: You know, I know alcohol kills people in its own way, um, and it can rip apart families, rip apart lives. I don't see it as the same. Um You know, 50 also has, and I'm not justifying something with capitalism, although it probably sounds like I am, like 50 has, you know, deals to sell. He has products to sell. I just listened, you know, there's a comedian, stand-up comedian, Ron White, and he's now sober, had a huge issue with alcohol, and he owns a tequila company. And he still, when he does a stand-up special, gets on stage with a bottle of tequila, but in his glass is a lime and water because he's sober. And he tells the world that, 50's never been shy about telling the world he doesn't drink and his fitness reg- regimen. I think that's totally, totally different. I mean, yes, Future named a series of projects Dirty Sprite, but he does not own Sprite. He's not being paid by Promethazine and Codeine and these products. It is just sheerly out of, you know, trying to appear something you're not. And that has a damaging effect on listeners and especially i feel like young and impressionable impressionable listeners so i see that vastly different
0: uh, I, I i don't have a problem with him i think it's ironic that he has a liquor brand um you know as a person because it's clearly it's almost like a drug dealer who doesn't use the product but pushes it onto the people and you know i'm in my snowfall bag right now but <laughs> like you know um I think on some level, you know the damage that it does or you think that it does damage and so you don't do it for yourself because otherwise why wouldn't you? you know but but I think that the, where it crosses the line for me is the faking. you know, like 50 is a person who has always prided himself or um, or portrayed himself as being authentic, right? Uh, in his music and his um, scripted entertainment, things like that. So I, I think taking the step of putting ginger ale in a champagne bottle, to pretend like you're drinking champagne or having uh, a prop drink that to me goes a little bit far. Uh, I, I think that, that part crosses the line for me. Um, the rest is just, I think uh, commentary, you know,
1: one other thing I did the 2007 Forbes list for cash Kings with my editor, Leah Goldman and some other folks at Forbes, but they, they brought me in and paid me much more than the source still owes me to <laughs> <laughs> to do that article um and it was funny man I was 23 years old and that was the biggest assignment I ever had and with 50 in particular I mentioned Jay-Z's line on the I got money remix where you said figure what the four no it was another song he said figure what the Forbes figure then figure more but that summer it was Jay-Z Puffy and 50 and we knew that they would all be competing for number one and then those guys hopped on that joint together um but of all the folks i dealt with all the big companies 50 cent who was managed at the time by chris lighty our rest in peace was by far the easiest um and i always think of that because i was a very um probably in over my head writer and with a very trusted seasoned editor but i remember you you would make estimates you would you would get you know the same way that they talk in that dilla documentary of you know how much Dilla is earning a track i was going to timberland and scott storch's people and saying like can you tell me what your client makes a song which no one wants to say and no one wants that to be published in a really respectable you know publication because then the irs might be watching and say well you did seven songs and you know you're saying this amount of money so it's very very you know tongue-in-cheek but chris lighty was always super helpful and he looked at all of my notes and told me a couple of places that were low a couple of places that were high and handed it back to me and to your point it might have been totally inaccurate it could have been you know trying to get 50 to the top spot but I always remember and it's one of the things you and I have spoken of 50 on this podcast like of superstar rappers or superstar hip-hop artists I've always found 50 Cent much like Snoop Dogg to be a delight to work with and incredibly transparent and just what you hope somebody like that to be i hear what you're saying about the liquor but i look at those lists and and i've seen the headlines this week kind of taper back 50 cent is a billionaire to 50 cent says he lives a billionaire's lifestyle so i have my belief that you know i'm kind of with you that i don't think so but who's to say yeah, listen to the whole quote. That's what
0: that's what my takeaway was too, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's what cuz he he talked about not wanting for anything, being able to do pretty much whatever you wanted to do, which you know, uh, but very very different. But he said I'm a billionaire. I've been a billionaire since 2007.
1: So, <laughs> yeah. Uh any other any what are, what else you want to cover? Man, we've covered so much. I want to say rest in peace to Seymour Stein. I know he passed away a few weeks ago, but you know I'm a fan of of New York City punk rock. You know a lot of that Sire Records stuff. I've sat on this podcast wearing a Talking Head shirt that I actually bought with you during the pandemic in New York. We hit up a dope merch store in the Lower East Side, and that's what I grabbed. Um, but he passed away, and I think from the hip hop perspective, that matters because Sire Warner Brothers um, took a real chance on Ice-T, you know, in the mid 1980s and, you know, released and distributed Rhyme Pays and put out Rhyme Syndicate, which introduced the world to, you know, Everlast and Dub C and, you know, DJ Muggs and a host of different people. Um, so I just thought, you know, as he passed away, I believe he was 80 years old, wanted to acknowledge that, um, you know, from all that I've heard from Ice, he was a really good record executive and a good guy and years later, after uh, Cop Killer came out and Warner Brothers no longer wanted to be in business with Ice T or Body Count, they let Ice walk with his uh, masters and the album that he'd already recorded, which I think became the uh, Home Invasion album. Mm,
0: mm. Well, I got three quick things. Uh, you know, one is Alan Hughes was on The Breakfast Club and we, we talked about Easy e earlier. Uh, but he said something I'd never heard before, which is that Old Dog, the character, you know, the iconic character in Minister Society, was actually written for Easy E. And like that would have that that was a real shocker to me. He said, but Easy and Jerry Heller, were t- uh, you know, of Ruthless, were too controlling. They wanted to like control every aspect, and so that's why that didn't work out. Obviously. Similar kind of things happen with Tupac, uh, but we'll talk more about that. He was on promoting uh, his upcoming Dear um, uh, Dear Mama Mama documentary on Tupac and his mom. Um, And then DJ Cassidy, who brought a lot of joy to folks in 2020, along with D. Nice and Timbaland and Swizz with Versus um, with his Past the Mic series, is doing a live version of that one night only in Radio City in New York City. And uh, it's featuring Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, Slick Rick, Dougie Fresh, Black Sheep, Brand Nubian, CL Smooth, EPMD, Moni Love, Special Ed, Roxanne Shante, and many more. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. I'm sure we'll talk more about that in the future. And then last but not least, we've covered this in the past. You know, hip hop, as it is in its 50th year, has crossed a lot of mainstream barriers over the last few years One of and getting recognition from different institutions uh you know so the grammys are giving more recognition uh we've gotten oscars but one of the big threshold rock and roll hall of fame one of the big thresholds was that um, songs and albums started getting put in the library of congress um, and that's happened a few times over the years and the national registry just announced today as a matter of fact that queen latifah's all hail the queen uh you know her album uh, with Ladies first and you know, uh all those great records. Wrath they, of my they, madness. That's my joy. Yeah, Wrath of My Madness, just tons of stuff. And so that is gonna be um uh placed in the National Registry, the Library of Congress. So salute to her. Uh, but you know, pretty, pretty awesome.
1: I love that, especially watching her, you know, with De La uh recently and just I know you were in the building that gave me chills. That we we interviewed MC8 in one of the first years, well, in the first year of this podcast, and one of our first guests. And 8 revealed that the Awax character was originally shot to Ren. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yep, that's right. Okay, that's so it's right. crazy. Like, when they made that film, they were thinking of easy in one role and Ren in another. Yep, yep. But- he,
0: he wanted Well, you know, he made it clear that in order to get the film greenlit, he had to have um, known talent associated with it. So without Tupac being um, attached to the project, and he was supposed to play Sharif, uh, the Muslim character, the the film wouldn't have gotten greenlit, so for him to have to fire Tupac was a big deal. But but they were able to keep going and make the film. But yeah, it was going to be a, an all star kind of rap cast. What's each line about getting the forty ounce? What is it? Uh yeah, all yeah, uh, y'all may slinging all this in the hood, but ain't got no ends on the petrol. Petrol. That one-
1: That's it. That's the line. yeah. <laughs> yeah love it love uh, it man yeah. So yeah we got some new music on the playlist i'll let everyone just check that out on their own um a lot as you said it was hard to narrow down just to four or five black dot joints and l michaels affair but what's your uh, what's your song of the week man song of the week for me is the the title track glorious game you
0: know that one instantly hit me uh there's a bunch that did but that one like spoke to me
1: like just right out of the gate how about you Crazy man, because I didn't imagine that we would be mentioning Gift of Gab's Passing or Black Alicious's Time at MCA. But I knew what my song of the week was, and it's Swan Lake by Black Alicious. I've been listening to a lot of that early soul side stuff, and it just brings me so much joy and just phenomenal hip hop. If people have never heard it, check that out the Melodica EP.
0: Word, dope stuff, dope stuff, yes, sir. Right, well, then. till we do it again, yep, always a pleasure. All right. Likewise, All right. peace. Later.